morning we'll be reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 37, the entire chapter. If you have one of the uh, bluish Bibles from the church, it's on page 31. It's also on the screen behind me. Genesis, chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. 
Judas said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Amen. Thanks, Pete. That was a long reading. We're actually looking at two chapters this morning, chapter 37 and 38, so buckle up. Uh, but before we look at God's Word this morning, uh, let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the lessons that it teaches us. And we thank you that in it we find hope. We find hope that even in the mess of our lives, uh, you are working. I pray, Father, that by your Spirit you'd be encouraging us today, that you would be exhorting us, um, that you'd be uh, changing our hearts and our minds. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a confession to make. Uh, I've been reading a bit of the Women's Weekly recently. Uh, for good reasons, of course, mostly research for this sermon. Uh, you see, this morning we're looking at the mess of life. And it, when it comes to that kind of stuff, there's no business that depends on mess more than Women's Weekly and those kind of magazines. So I've been reading about Barnaby Joyce's affair with Vicky Campion and Meghan Markle's family who didn't go to her wedding and all sorts of other messy stories hyped up by the media. But as I read all these stories, I quickly realized that I don't need to read Women's Weekly to find examples of mess. I just need to look right here in this room. Our lives... Sorry, that was a bit insulting, wasn't it? <laughs> our lives, all of our lives, and my life as well, they're already filled with mess. They're already filled with mess. They're already filled with jealousy and hatred and broken relationships and immorality and violence. All of us, to some extent, have this kind of mess in our lives. And we are either innocent victims who have had this mess thrust upon us, or we are the guilty offenders who have caused this mess in the first place. And the question that most of us tend to find ourselves asking in these situations, whether we're the victims or the offenders, is where is God in this mess? 
Now, for the next four weeks, we're going to be walking through the story of Joseph across nine chapters, Genesis 37 to 45. And it's a story in which life goes horribly wrong for almost all of the characters. And the question we'll be asking ourselves each week as we go through this story is, where is God? Where is God when life is unfair, when life is unbearable, when life is unpredictable? But this morning, uh, the question we'll be asking ourselves is, where is God when life is a mess? And as we look at the first installment of the story this morning, we're going to see a lot of mess. We're going to meet an innocent victim who, um, whose life is a mess through no fault of their own. We'll meet some guilty offenders who uh, try to hide the mess they've made. We'll meet a guilty offender who tries to ignore the mess he's made. And then finally, we'll meet the one who is with us in the mess, whether we are innocent or guilty. That's where we're headed this morning. So if you've got a Bible handy, um, turn to chapter 37, Genesis chapter 37, if you haven't already, or you can follow along on the screen. Uh, So let me introduce you to the innocent victim. His name is Joseph. Verses 1 and 2, his father's name is Jacob. Jacob lives in the land of Canaan. Jacob has 12 sons, and as we're about to find out, most of them seem to hate Joseph. And on a superficial level, it, it seems as though the brothers hate Joseph for three legitimate reasons. He's A, a tittle-tattle, he's B, daddy's favourite, and C, he's an egotistical dreamer. That's one way of looking at it, that young Joseph, he's a bit of a jerk, and that's why his brothers hate him. And that's generally how most people read the story. But when you look closely at these verses, you quickly realise that's not necessarily the case. Firstly, is Joseph really a tittle-tattle? Have a look at the second, uh, second half of verse 2. Uh, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Vil- Bilhar and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, this seems to be a one-off incident, The narrator doesn't give us many details here. He doesn't say who's in the wrong. But when you read about the kind of integrity that Joseph has later on in the story, and when you read about what kind of characters the brothers are, you can join the dots. Joseph isn't a tittle-tattle, just trying to get his brothers into trouble for the sake of it. He's probably seen his brothers do something dodgy, and he's reported them. That takes guts and integrity. Now, secondly, is Joseph just daddy's favourite? Have a look at verses 3 and 4. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, to be fair, Joseph is Jacob's favourite child, but that's not Joseph's fault. Jacob essentially had four wives, Leah and Rachel and their two maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah. Those four wives gave birth to Jacob's 12 boys. And Jacob's favourite wife was Rachel. She gave birth to the two youngest boys, Benjamin and Joseph. But she died giving birth to Benjamin. So Jacob's favourite son was naturally Joseph, the son of his favourite wife. And he even made him a beautiful coat. And as a result of this favoritism, the other brothers hated Joseph. But none of that was Joseph's fault. 
If anything, it was Jacob's fault. Jacob shouldn't have been playing favourites. So is Joseph a tittle-tattle? Is he daddy's favourite? Not really. And if he is, it's not because he's done something wrong. But there's one more question here. Is Joseph an egotistical dreamer? Joseph has two dreams. Firstly, verses 5 to 7, he dreams that his brother's sheaves of grain bow down to his upright sheaf. And then secondly, uh, verse 9, he dreams that the sun, moon and 11 stars were bowing down to him. Uh, Basically, Joseph dreams that his whole family, mum, dad and 11 brothers, are bowing down to him. And as a result of these dreams, his brothers hate him even more. Verse 8, and his dad even tells him off in verse 10. But again, Joseph's not at fault here. These dreams were not simply Joseph's imagination. They were God-given revelations of the future. And as we'll see as we go through the rest of the series, every dream in this story, and there are three more dreams to come, every dream comes true. And they come true because God is the one who gives the dreams to reveal his plan for that person. And the brothers seem to realize that. They seem to realize that about Joseph's dreams. Look at how they react to the first dream. They say, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? You see, they realize that God has big plans for Joseph, and because of this, verse 11, they're jealous of him. Why are they jealous? They're jealous that God has chosen him. And that's ultimately why they hate him. So again, Joseph hasn't done anything wrong here. He's the innocent victim in this story. But we don't usually read the story this way. I find it fascinating that when we read stories, our instinct is to read karma into the story. You know, what comes around goes around. You get what you give, that kind of stuff. We know that something terrible is going to happen to Joseph, and so that we naturally think, or I do at least, that he must have done something terrible to deserve it. But look, he hasn't done anything terrible. He's the innocent victim of this story. And his life is about to get much worse through no fault of his own. Now we're going to come back to him, but now we're about to be introduced to the guilty offenders, Joseph's brothers. And what's interesting about these guys is not what they do, but how they try to hide the giant mess that they make. And these guys are dodgier than you might realize from looking at these verses. Have a look at verses 12 to 14. The brothers have gone to shepherd their flocks in Shechem, verse 12. And so, verses 13 to 14, Jacob sends Joseph to check on them there. That seems fairly tame, but if you've been reading through the whole book of Genesis up to this point, Shechem would ring a bell. Because back in Genesis 34, a guy called Shechem the man after whom his town, Shechem, was named, raped Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And all the brothers were furious. And Jacob, the coward, didn't do anything about it because he was afraid. And so two of the brothers, Levi and Simeon, took matters into their own hands and they went on a killing spree in Shechem and killed all the Shechemites. That's... Shechem. 
So these brothers are no strangers to violence. So back in Genesis 37, naturally, Jacob sends Joseph to Shechem to make sure that the boys aren't up to more trouble. And Shechem isn't close. It's 80 kilometers away. This is a multiple-day journey for Joseph to check on his brothers. But when Joseph arrives in Shechem, in verse 15, his brothers aren't there. Fortunately, he bumps into this random guy who seems who sees him wandering around, clueless in the fields, and this guy just so happened to overhear where the brothers went, verse 17, to Dothan, another 21 kilometers away. So if I was Joseph, I'd probably be thinking to myself at this point, gee, that was really lucky I bumped into that guy. But little does Joseph know what's about to happen next. Verses 17 and 18, Joseph goes to Dothan, the boys see him approaching, and they plan to kill him. Verse 19 and 20, here comes the dreamer, they say to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now at this point in the story, something odd happens. Reuben, the oldest son, he pipes up trying to rescue Joseph. Let's not take his life, he says. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben, for some reason, doesn't want Joseph to die. Reuben's the firstborn of the family, which means that if anything happens to Joseph, it's on him. He's ultimately responsible. Now, we also know from Genesis 35 that Reuben had slept with Bilhah, one of his father's wives, which means he's already in dad's bad books and he probably doesn't want things to get worse. So it sort of seems as though Reuben isn't one of the guilty offenders in this story, but look at what he doesn't do. He doesn't want to put his neck on the line to protect Joseph. He stops short of saying, this is our little brother, don't you dare hurt him. He says, let's just throw him into a cistern, and he plans on pulling him out later, while the boys aren't looking. Now, keep in mind that a cistern is, you know, a hole in the ground that's about five meters deep. That's about the height of this screen. That's, that's, that's a significant fall. And the particular cistern that Reuben's talking about is bone dry. So does Reuben really care about Joseph? Probably not. Joseph arrives, verse 23... The brothers rip off his beautiful coat and they throw him into the cistern. Then they sit down for a meal and here's where it almost gets comical. The brothers have a change of heart. They don't realize that Reuben plans on rescuing Joseph later because he hasn't told them. In their minds, the plans to just leave Joseph there to die. Then they spot a bunch of merchants on their way to Egypt in verse 25 and while Reuben is off on the toilet or somewhere, Judah, the fourth oldest, gives a stirring speech in verses 26 to 27 to the other brothers about why we shouldn't let Joseph bleed to death at the bottom of the well. You know, he's our little brother after all. He's our own flesh and blood. So he convinces the other brothers that they should sell Joseph into slavery. That's the better thing to do. So, verse 28, they pull Joseph out of the cistern, they sell him to the Ishmaelite and Midianite merchants for a bit of silver, and they have no idea that their rescue plan 
has just ruined Reuben's actual rescue plan. Then Reuben comes back from the toilet or whatever. He goes to the cistern to pull Joseph out and he discovers, "Uh uh-oh, he isn't there. And he's ropeable. He tears his clothes and he says to his brothers, the boy isn't there, where can I turn now? Now, a few verses ago, it seemed as though the brothers all wanted to kill Joseph. But by this point, they all thought they were doing the right thing. Or the better thing, at least. But it doesn't matter at this point. Joseph's gone, sold into slavery, and they're all guilty. Whether at the end of the day they wanted that to happen or not, they're all culpable. The brothers' actions and Reuben's inaction makes them all guilty. And they all know that. And this is where it gets interesting. Instead of going back to Jacob and saying, Dad, we made a terrible mistake. Instead of saying that, they hatch a plan to cover up their mess, to hide their sin. They take Joseph's robe, verse 31, they slaughter a goat, then they drench the robe in the goat's blood so it looks like Joseph had been attacked. And then they take it back to Jacob, verse 32, and they say, we found this, examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. And Jacob obviously recognizes the robe and he says, it's my son's robe, some ferocious animal has devoured him, Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Now, if the brothers were hoping that by hiding their sin, they would make things better, they were dead wrong. Look at how Jacob responds. Verse 34, he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, and he cries for days and days and days. He's literally inconsolable. He refuses to be comforted by his sons and daughters, and he says in verse 35, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. Now, in the process of trying to hide their mess, the brothers inflict a huge amount of emotional damage onto their own father. They just make the whole thing worse. Hiding the mess doesn't work. And that's something we learn in our own lives. Hiding the mess, hiding our past, hiding who we really are, hiding what we've done and said, it's all a band-aid solution. It's a temporary quick fix. It's exhausting and it doesn't work. But there's another solution to our mess that equally doesn't work, and that's ignoring the mess. And at this point in the Joseph story, we meet another guilty offender who tries that tactic, who tries to ignore the mess that he makes. And this time, it's Judah in Genesis 38. Judah, it turns out, is a major player in the Joseph story, as we'll later see. But when we get introduced to his background here in Genesis 38, you quickly realize it's a big mess, and he tries to ignore it. Now, I'm just going to give you the brief, convoluted rundown of the story, we're going to go quickly here. If you don't follow it, that's okay. Okay? So after the Joseph incident, Judah moves out of home and he marries a Canaanite woman, which was a big no-no. Canaanites were wicked people with evil practices, which included sacrificing their own children in the fire, so marrying them was off-limits. 
But Judah marries one anyway, and she gives birth to three boys, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Uh, Judah gets a wife for Ur called Tamar, but God strikes down Ur because he's an evil dude. Anyway, Judah ignores that, tells his other son Onan to sleep with Tamar to carry on the family name. That was your duty as a brother-in-law back then. But Onan does a dodgy. You can read it on the screen. I'm not going to read it out loud. He figures out a neat trick to stop Tamar getting pregnant, presumably so that he would get more inheritance. God's not impressed, so he strikes down Onan. Also, at some point, Judah's Canaanite wife dies too. But somehow, Judah ignores the fact that God is systematically striking down his whole family. Judah then invites Tamar to live in his house, and he tells her that she can marry Sheila when he grows up. But in the back of his mind, he knows that if Sheila marries Tamar, Sheila's probably going to die too. So he breaks his promise to Tamar. He doesn't tell, he doesn't give her to Sheila. And so Tamar is stuck in life. She's a widow. She's got no kids. She has no livelihood. And so what does Judah do? He just ignores it. So Tamar decides to take matters into her own hands. She dresses up like a prostitute. She covers her face. She goes to a place where she knows Judah, her father-in-law, will be walking past. Judah sees her but doesn't recognize her, and he sleeps with her. He doesn't have anything to pay her, so he leaves his signet ring, his cord, and his staff with her as collateral, like leaving your wallet at a petrol station when you you forgot to bring money. He then goes home. He gets a goat. He tries to find Tamar again so he can pay her, but he can't find her. Three months later... Surprise, surprise. Where are we up to? Yep. Um, Judah hears that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. And how does Judah respond? He says, bring her out and have her burned to death. Now, at this point, you're thinking to yourself, you hypocritical, dirty dog, Judah. You're the one who slept with her. But Tamar is a clever cookie, And she pulls out Judah's signet ring and his cord and his staff, and she says, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. At which point, Judah's face probably goes bright red, and he says, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. So Tamar's off the hook, and she gives birth to two twins, uh, Perez and Zerah. Now, I don't know if you followed all of that, because that's a giant mess, but basically, to sum up, because of Judah's deliberate sin, marrying a Canaanite woman, and because of the way he tried to deal with it, just ignoring it, the mess in his life snowballed until most of his family was dead, and he had ended up accidentally impregnating his daughter-in-law. That's the story of Judah. Now, as we've been looking at Joseph, the innocent victim, and his brothers, the guilty offenders, maybe you've been able to relate to their situations in some ways. Maybe you've been able to somehow find some sort of camaraderie with them. Because as I said at the beginning, all of our lives are filled with mess to some extent. All of us are innocent victims of other people's sin, And all of us are guilty offenders of sin ourselves. And the question we tend to find ourselves asking, whether we're an innocent victim or a guilty offender, is where is God? Where's God? How would you feel if you were in Joseph's position? 
the innocent victim. If I was Joseph, I'd be feeling pretty sorry for myself. I'd be thinking, I haven't done anything wrong. Why is God letting this happen to me? I'd also be thinking, if only I hadn't bumped into that random guy at Shechem. I wouldn't be on my way to Egypt right now. God could have easily stopped this from happening. Where is he? Well, what about Reuben, the guilty offender? How would you feel if you were him? If I was Reuben, I'd be feeling pretty hopeless. I'd be thinking, if only those camels, if only those merchants hadn't happened to pass through at that exact moment, I wouldn't be in this predicament right now. God could have easily stopped this from happening. Where is he? Or what about Judah, another guilty offender? How would you feel if you were him? If I was Judah, I'd be feeling so ashamed, so disgusted with myself. I'd be thinking, I've messed up big time, and I don't know how God could ever forgive me for what I've done. Has he abandoned me now? Where is he? Now, whether we are the victims of ugly evil and sin or the perpetrators, the offenders ourselves, that's the question we ask ourselves. Where's God? Does he even care about me anymore? And that brings us to the last person we need to meet this morning, the person who's with us in the mess, Jesus. You see, God is with us in our mess in Jesus. Whether we're an innocent victim or a guilty offender, God is with us in the mess in Jesus. Firstly, Jesus knows what it's like to be an innocent victim. He was brutally whipped and beaten and crucified, even though he had done absolutely nothing wrong. And since he is the Son of God, God incarnate, God in the flesh, he's the proof that God himself has skin in the game. God knows what it's like to suffer. God knows what it's like to be a victim of other people's sin. He's been through it himself in Jesus. So if you're an innocent victim here this morning, be comforted. God knows exactly what you're going through. He's been through family conflict. He's had his best friend disown him when he needed him the most. He's had nails driven through his hands. God feels your pain because he has felt your pain in Jesus and we'll be fleshing this idea out more in the weeks to come. But where we want to land on this morning is that Jesus is with us, and hence God is with us, in the mess, even when we are the guilty offenders. Now, we all know other people who deserve to be punished by God for their evil and sin, but the uncomfortable reality for all of us this morning is that we ourselves are all guilty offenders before God too. We might be innocent victims in certain areas of our lives, but at the same time, all of us are guilty in others. And we all deserve to be punished by God for our own evil and sin. But the good news is that Jesus is with guilty people like us. 
He's with us in our mess. We know that because while he was on earth, he hung out with guilty, messy people like tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. It was Jesus who said in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus came to earth to call guilty, messy sinners like us. And he offers us free forgiveness to all those who humbly admit that they are guilty and that they need help. So don't hide your sin like Joseph's brothers did. Don't ignore your sin like Judah did. If you do that, the mess will snowball. It will set your life on a course to hell. No, bring your sin to Jesus, whether it's for the first time or the millionth time. Bring your sin to Jesus. Admit your sin to Him. Pray that He would change your heart. Ask Him to forgive you, and He will. And He will. How does He forgive us? How does God manage to forgive guilty sinners? It's through the cross. There's a beautiful song, uh, Your Mess is Mine by a guy called Vance Joy. I've heard it play at two weddings now. It might seem like a strange song to play at a wedding, Your Mess is Mine, but it beautifully captures what happens in a marriage, and it also captures what happens between us and Jesus. You see, when two people get married, everything that belonged to one person now belongs to both of them, including the mess. And it's the same with us and Jesus. If Jesus is your Lord and King, you are married to Him. You are connected to Him. And that means everything that belongs to Him becomes yours, and everything that belonged to you becomes His, namely your mess. You see, on the cross, Jesus took our mess, He took our sin, and He paid the ultimate price for it. He paid the price that we were meant to pay. He took the nails that were meant for us so that God could justly forgive us. And so in those moments of despair, those moments of guilt and shame, when we think to ourselves, how could God ever love or forgive someone like me? Look to the cross. Because the cross shows us how a just God could forgive guilty people like us. The cross reminds us, whether we're innocent victims or guilty offenders, that God is with us in our mess in Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a merciful and compassionate God, that you have mercy on sinners like us. Please, Father, forgive us for our sin. Please, Father, help us not to hide our sin, not to ignore it, but to bring it to the cross, to bring it to the feet of Jesus. I pray that we would worship him now in his name. Amen.